Hi Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I am checking in with journalist Madeline Davies. Madeline is a senior writer at the Church Times and has worked there for over 12 years. I came across Madeline through social media and a book she wrote on grief to help young adults and teenagers called Lights for the Path. Madeline wrote this book out of her own grief she experienced when she lost her mother when she was 12 years old and she wanted a resource that would have helped her when she was younger. In this episode, we discuss how she got into journalism, including being a member of CBBC's Newsround Press Pack as a child, the role of the church in local communities in supporting people with mental health difficulties, where is the place for prayer when it comes to faith and mental health, and the reality of how many vicars and members of the clergy have suffered with mental health issues themselves. We also discuss the balance she must strike as a journalist when writing about scandals that hit the Church of England as an institution, particularly issues around sexual abuse or exploitation when it comes to investigative reporting. We also talk about taking stories of abuse seriously whilst also making sure the rights of the accused are not violated either. We then discuss the themes she discusses in her book and move on to Madeline's mental health journey where we discuss the grief for her mother in depth how it impacted her desire to have children of her own and the power of her own faith in shaping her decisions, her mental health and her outlook on life. So this is how my conversation with Madeline Davies went. Madeline, welcome to the Just Check In pod. Thank you very much for taking the time to let me check in with you. After I came across your wonderful book to help young people with grief, I knew I wanted to get you on the podcast and here we are. We're going to discuss all about your journey and everything in between. First off, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be asked. No problem at all. You are in a, God, it feels quite weird to say now, but you're in a fairly niche part of journalism in your role in the Church Times now, I would Mm -hmm. say, in the UK. But it still holds a really valuable role in the UK society and for those with faith. So we've got lots Mm. to talk about, as I said. Without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I am, thank you. Let's begin your podcast by talking about your journalism journey, Maddie. So take me back to the beginning first. How and why did you become inspired to be a journalist? Where did your love for writing or storytelling or reporting come from? And the journey to where you are today? Yeah, I think I always loved books. Um, My mum, who we'll be talking about in the podcast, was um, a massive reader. So I grew up in a house with lots of stories. I loved writing my own stories as a kid. Um, I would also say that the BBC programme Newsround was quite influential, probably. I really loved the show and I joined... Yes, indeed. Um, I joined what was known as the Press Pack, which was this sort of club that anyone that watched could join and you could send in assignments and some kids got chosen to kind of present their story on the news. And I suppose that was sort of my introduction to what journalism could look like. 
on what era of Newsroom are we talking here? Because my era was Lee Zoe and Ellie and a little bit of little bit of Matthew Price, but less so Adam Fleming. He came later. What what was yours? Yeah, so this was kind of back in the early nineties. So it was um Christian Guru Murthy, who's now oh. um, a presenter on Channel Four. So he went on to big things, but at the time he was this sort of young, cool newsround presenter. So that was my era. Excellent. Newsround back then was so good at delivering the news for children and young people in a really digestible way that wasn't patronizing. Yeah. And my my friend and friend of the pod, DeGraff Mensa, does that in his role as presenter of, of Newsround now. Oh. How did that inspire you to be a journalist you'd go on to be, if at all? I think it was that sense that I would um, enjoy investigating and reporting. I really love interviewing people and kind of trying to discern the truth of a story and trying to present that to an audience. And I think Newsround was a lovely way to see that in action, really. And I agree with you that it was very unpatronising. You know, it took children's interest in the news seriously. Um, and I think that was quite inspiring. Despite that brilliant experience on Newsround, it's fair to say that you lacked the confidence to pursue journalism as the full-time dream for a while. So Mm. after you left university, you pursued a few various other careers instead. What was Mm. that period like? And just tell me about the the Madeline we meet here and what you learned. Um, So I think when I left university, I was very aware that journalism was a really competitive industry. (laughs) I think you do need to be quite confident often to pursue it, even maybe a bit pushy. Um, You need to make network and make contacts. And I don't think that was a sort of particular strength of mine but it was always kind of there in the background and I knew that I probably wouldn't be happy unless I unless I tried and so I did end up going back to evening classes at a college and taking a certificate in journalism which was kind of my entry into the sector but it did take me a while probably to sort of get the confidence to pursue it. Let's talk about the Church Times now, because you've been there for 12 years, which is a big, big period of your life, to be honest. (laughs) It is, yeah. There are many journalists who I'm sure are of faith or are Christian, but don't work in religious outlets. So why did you want to combine your faith and your career by joining it and staying there for so long? So I think sort of before I trained as a journalist, I did write for The Guardian on their online site and I wrote blog pieces for them. And this was, I guess, sort of the start of the era where online journalism was really taking off. And there were really good opportunities if you wanted, I guess, as an amateur to try your hand at it. And I realised I was really sort of naturally drawn towards writing about faith and ethics. I think I was really conscious that I was sort of in a minority as a practising fairly young Christian. I guess I sort of had that desire to explain what faith is like to a non-practicing majority and it was maybe also a way of kind of working out what I believed and sort of a way of thinking out loud in the process of writing so I really was drawn to both religion and journalism. In terms of staying at the Church Times for so long, it is a really long period of my life. And when I tell people I've been there for that long, I think they're a bit surprised. But I think I just it's like found a BBC so... journal. I know. <laughs> I'm there for life. Um, yeah. I think it's just a lovely place to work. You have so much freedom to write about what interests you. You know, I've got a lovely team of colleagues and I'm kind of lucky enough to have a job that I genuinely look forward to going to every day. So, yeah, no plans to move at the moment. <laughs> the Church Times specifically focuses on issues affecting the Church of England denomination or branch of UK Christianity, Maddie. And you told me about how significant percentages of church congregations have mental health difficulties and Mm. are, well, either the church supports them through their role in the community or vice versa. So how Mm. do you see that play out in the reporting you've done 
and you know, I don't want you to name names, maybe which churches do it better than others, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at its best, the church is welcoming of all. You know, it doesn't have any requirements to being a member. And, you know, if you're following the, the Bible's instructions, you should be non-judgmental um, and welcoming everybody and sort of regarding everyone as deserving of love and compassion. So I think it can be a wonderful place for people with mental health challenges. At the same time, I guess there are challenges for the church in getting that right. Obviously, it's very important to remember that alongside prayer and faith, people need proper medical care and treatment. And I think there can be some challenges around how we make sense of things like anxiety and depression and where God is in all of that. I think there can be a risk that people feel that their mental um, ill health is a failing or a sign that they don't trust God. So it's quite a complex picture and one that I think the the church needs to get right. I think it can do that. And we've seen that in some churches. And there are some kind of pitfalls to be aware of as well. You spoke there about prayer, which is really interesting because I did an interview recently with a friend of the pod, Jackie Banza's platform, La Grace de Francois, and her brother is a pastor. And we discussed faith and mental health in our discussion, specifically the historical stigma of faith leaders telling congregations or individuals to pray away, in inverted commas, mental health difficulties. So how far have we come when it comes to the stigma? And where do you see the role of prayer as a mental health tool now? Because it can be a help and it Mm -hmm. can be a hindrance, depending on who you are. Yeah, I'd like to think that we, we've come some way to addressing the stigma. And actually, some of the leaders in the Church of England have been quite vocal about their own mental health challenges. Um, so the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's sort of the most senior figure in our church, has spoken about his depression. He's spoken about taking antidepressants. So I think there's been a message from the very top that it is something that affects everybody, potentially. And it's something that you don't need to be ashamed of. I think when it comes to prayer, um, I mean, a lot of studies have shown that prayer and religious faith does have a really positive effect on physical and mental health and something like meditative prayer and the support of a loving religious community can have a really positive effect but I think as I said earlier you wouldn't want that to displace the proper role of medication or talking therapies in the NHS um, so it's kind of making sure that the two I guess aren't in conflict. When it comes to how we support people in church communities with their mental health and from the top. One thing I said Mm -hmm. to Jackie's brother Manny on the podcast was that maybe every pastor or faith leader should be mental health first aid trained to educate them about mental health and support their congregation to the best of their ability. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I, um, really love that idea, um, actually. Um, There are some Christian charities who offer that sort of thing. There's something called the Sanctuary Course, which is training that you can go through to help make your church a safe space for people with mental health challenges. So I think the church is is kind of moving in that direction, and and I really like it as an idea. There's been, as we've mentioned, a decline amongst white British young people when it comes to their belief in God. But the picture for... South Asian and Afro-Caribbean people is slightly different and for different religions, especially Mm. for for Afro-Caribbeans, you know, the proportion for people of faith is still very, very high. So how have you seen the decline play out in the former and the impact it has on where they find community when the church no longer has that role in their life? Yeah, I mean, I guess from a personal point of view, I had such a positive experience of a church youth group, particularly after my mum died. You know, it was a huge part of my adolescence. It's where I met my best friend. It was a group outside of school that was a place I felt I belonged. And I think church can be a really healthy place where young people meet older generations and interact with people who are different from them, you know, in age or in other ways. And I think that's really healthy. 
So in a way, it's something which I wish sort of more young people got to experience. You know, I think there are issues with loneliness, with peer pressure, with some of the pressures that come from so much interaction online. And I think in some ways the church can, can counter that. At the same time, I do think young people often, even if they're not churchgoers, you know, they do have an interest in, in spiritual things and in faith. So I think there is a potential there that the church could be tapping into, even just providing a place for young people to explore those ideas. You spoke there about the Archbishop of Canterbury talking about his mental health and, and you told me off air that you've had many vicars and members of the clergy write for the Church Times about their mental health struggles and their mental health generally. So mm-hmm. how much of a problem is it amongst the wider clergy and do you think they have the right support from the higher ups from your reporting? Yeah, I mean, it is difficult to get a sense of kind of exact figures. I think there was a a 2017 study that found that the rates of anxiety and depression weren't kind of significantly higher amongst clergy than than other people. I think clergy face some quite specific challenges. You know, they're often really at the extremities of life. They're conducting funerals. They're hearing people who've um, experienced tragedies or are going through really difficult situations. They're therapists in some way. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they're carrying quite a few burdens and people have pointed out recently you know they're not trained in in the way that therapists are they don't have the supervision that professional therapists do so I think they do have sort of particular challenges and there's a potential there for burnout which is something that we've that we've talked about so there's a lot of discussion at the moment about the pressures that that clergy are under and whether they do get enough support and you know we do get clergy who who do burn out, who can't take the stresses of the job and who need support. So I think there are particular risks um, for the clergy when it comes to mental health. Before we talk about your brilliant book, we've got one industry issue that you want to discuss, which is how you and the Church Times and perhaps other religious outlets report on scandals that happen within the church and investigating Mm -hmm. them. So how do you as a journalist strike the balance between reporting fairly and giving people a voice? Yeah, um, I think that's a very difficult one. I think... It's really a case of, A, just kind of following proper media law. So naming people once they've been charged, making clear when things are allegations rather than convictions, trying to sort of report objectively on on what's taken place. At the same time, we have been a newspaper that's tried to give a voice to survivors of abuse Mm. and giving them the space to talk about um, what's happened to them, I think. A real issue in the church has been seeking to protect its reputation rather than seeking justice for victims. So we definitely sort of haven't shied away from covering abuse within the church and in giving victims a voice, which I think Mm. has been really important. Before we talk about the details of some of the the scandals that have happened in the recent past, Maddie, Mm. how have these scandals affected your view of the church and perhaps even your faith, especially if they've been handled badly, incompetently, and issues when it comes to scandals specifically about sexual abuse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to read the details of what's happened Mm. without feeling really angry and afraid, really. It reminds you that the church hasn't been a safe place for people. And it's probably made me personally sort of very attentive to safeguarding practices, you know, in the churches where I am and keen to make sure that those things are in place. I'm very aware that, you know, just because people are in the church doesn't mean they're infallible. You know, you have to have a the right level of, of scepticism, if not cynicism about the church. And just, yeah, I think progress has been made, but it just makes you very aware of, of what's gone wrong and mm. sort of how hurt people have been. 
on the case itself, in October last year, there was a BBC News article that reported that the CV had found hundreds of new cases involving allegations of abuse of vulnerable adults and children by clergy, church officers and volunteers. So there were specifically 383 cases, which is quite a lot. Now, I think most people, when they hear of sexual abuse scandals, will think of the Catholic Church for many reasons. So how did you feel when you read that story and reported on it initially? I mean, I think it's a continuation of very long running um, mm. story, really, which is the continual process of uncovering historic abuse. And there are a number of inquiries happening within the church at the moment, investigating how the church responded to those um, abuses at the time. In a sense, I suppose the church is always trying to say that lessons have been learned and that improvements have been made. But I think uh, really that the proof will be in how it responds to to reports of, of abuse today, you know, whether things really are different to, to the past where things were sort of mishandled so terribly. When it comes to how we enact change then, or how the church enacts change, I should say, the article listed 242 clergy, 53 church officers and 41 volunteers as alleged perpetrators still alive. Now, mm. for the victims, and I think for the wider public, that's quite a terrifying thing to think about. So what needs to change, in your opinion, to repair the church's reputation on this issue? I mean, I would argue that the priority shouldn't be repairing the reputation in a sense, because I think the problem in the past has been that that's been the priority rather than pursuing justice for victims. There's well, been so much. I sh- sorry, yeah. I sh- sorry, I should <laughs> clarify. Pursuing justice should be the way they repair it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. 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 So, so I think it might be the case that the reputation has to suffer and that we need to hold our hands up and say, rather than covering this stuff up, actually be honest about what has gone wrong Mm. and have proper compensation in place for survivors of abuse. And just to be very honest with the public, I think, about about what has gone on. I think people appreciate transparency rather than sort of seeking to mitigate that damage to reputation that's taken place. Like I said, historically, it was the Catholic Church which was more infamous for covering up the widespread sexual abuse of children by its clergy members. So the 2015 film Spotlight, which a lot of the listeners will be aware of, starring Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams and Mark Ruffalo, Mm. dramatised the story most prominently, I would say. Do you think there was, from your reporting, any form of complacency among some CV leaders who may have seen child sexual abuse or CSA as purely an issue for the Catholic side? Yeah, I think it was possibly less about thinking it was just a Catholic problem as a sort of wider societal issue of Mm. not really taking the potential for sexual abuse seriously, not thinking or daring to think, could it be happening here? And so I think that was sort of widespread across many other institutions, which the Institutional Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse found, you know, it wasn't just the church, it was other aspects of British society. So yes, I think there was a focus on the Catholic Church, but it was happening across all churches and all institutions, really. And it was, you know, a failure to turn a spotlight on that uh, and a willingness to overlook it um, or seek to sort of bury it, really. I wouldn't be doing my job without saying that we must, of course, caveat this conversation by saying that just because someone is accused of a crime does not make them guilty. And you only have to look at, say, the example of the satanic panic in the United States in the 1980s as a extreme illustration of this. And we know that falsely accused people can have their lives ruined or feel suicidal. There was even a recent case of a, of a man who was jailed for 17 years in the UK after being found guilty of rape that he didn't commit. So how do you maintain the balance as a journalist, Maddie, without displaying bias either way? 
I think it's really important to stick to current reporting legislation in terms of what we report and who we name. I think that's really important. Making it clear when something is an allegation rather than something that has actually been tested in a court of law. I think one of the challenges with the church is that the procedures for complaints about clergy behaviour can take a really long time to be resolved. So even if you report, you know, that somebody's been suspended and you're not able to say exactly what the allegations are, you know, that does leave that person in limbo. And people have spoken about the trauma, really, of being in that position of limbo, of being suspended, but there as yet being no decision about mm. the allegation, um, which is a, it can be a real challenge. Before we talk about the book, I've got one more question left, which is about your own ability as a journalist, Maddie, because one thing I noticed in our chat off air is that you have such a natural emotional intelligence and empathy in your tone of voice and manner that I was opening up to you pretty quickly myself, where usually I have to stay quite reserved because 99% of the time people are opening up to me instead. How's that ability served you well when you're reporting on these stories of abuse and interviewing the alleged victims? Yeah, I think it is a difficult one because at the end of the day, you're a journalist, you're not a counsellor. And I think <laughs> you, you sort of have to have those boundaries in place because actually yeah. I'm not sort of trained to offer therapeutic support. You know, I'm not. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah. And it, I guess it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that. And in some sense, I've got to sort of remain neutral. But I do see part of my job as being a good listener and hopefully asking good questions. And I think what I always want to achieve when I'm speaking to somebody is to make sure that when they see what they've said in print, they do feel that what they've said has been fairly represented. You know, I'm sure you will know that you know, sometimes if people talk, you know, for two hours plus, you can't possibly use everything that they've said. And then I often feel sort of quite guilty thinking, oh, you know, you're going to pick up the paper and think, oh, there's only sort of five paragraphs and I spoke to you for an hour. So it's trying to make sure that what they've said or what they see in print, they recognise as their story. And I do take that responsibility quite seriously. But obviously, when people do open up, you do want to listen, you don't want to cut them off but you're always aware that you won't be able to sort of capture everything that they've said on the page. I want to finish the topic by talking about your amazing book. It's called Lights Mm -hmm. for the Path, A Guide Through Grief, Pain and Loss. So initially, why did you decide to write it and what did you want to achieve with it? I think I was thinking back to losing my own mum when I was 12 and what a sort of isolating experience that was. I felt very alone and I felt very different from other people of my age. And so I sort of wanted to write something that I felt would have been helpful to me at the time, something that sort of reminded me that other people had been through that experience of loss at at that age and trying to gather stories so that the reader would feel less alone than I had done, hopefully. There's a lot of great books written by adults about grief and their journeys. You know, two that I loved was Reverend Richard Coles' book and Simon Thomas's, mm. which I thought was a basically a grief Bible. But mm. there's less so books aimed at young people and teenagers. So why do you think there was this gap in the market for you to positively take advantage of? Um, I mean, I think there's some beautiful books for younger children, sort of picture books, and they're often really grappling with how how to explain just the concept of death to a a small child. And as you've said, there's also some brilliant books for adults. And I guess teenagers sort of fall between the two. You know, you're not quite an adult, but equally, you know, a lot lot more than younger siblings. And I felt there was a a bit of a gap for that group who, you know, perhaps it's underestimated how much how many questions 
connections that they do have or mm. how much they're sort of grappling with death and with grief. And so I wanted to try and find something that kind of that straddled the two. Do you think there is a reluctance to speak to young people who fall in this gap between young children and adults about grief because of all the changes they're going through emotionally and physically, puberty and all that stuff? Perhaps there's a fear that they won't be able to handle the conversations or do you think the adults can't handle the conversation when they bring it up? Yeah. It's interesting you say that, actually, because I, I actually think it's the latter. I think as adults, we can be really afraid of children's yes. grief and their emotions. And staring at the pain. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think unconsciously, I think we can put pressure on children to be happy and to be brave. And then you get people talking about, you know, it's amazing how resilient children are. And I'm always a bit wary of that because I think, why are they showing resilience? Yes, children can recover, can move forward. But if they're showing resilience because actually they're not being allowed to express emotions that adults find difficult, I think that's a problem. If you had read this book when you were 12, obviously it's a hypothetical question, but how do you think it would have helped you? I mean, as a young person, I, I was always seeking out stories of people who I could relate to. So basically young women who'd also lost a mother or lost a parent because I wanted to see sort of how have other people managed and, and to feel less alone. But they were often fictional characters. I really loved a book by Judy Bloom called Tiger Eyes, which was about a young woman who'd lost her dad. And so hopefully a book like this would have shown that there aren't just kind of fictional characters. There are people out there, real people who've been through this and who are willing to share their stories. So I think that's what I was aiming for. The book is specifically about grief and various forms. So people who have lost parents, friends, siblings, grandparents, etc. From the interviews that you did, how did the different types of grief differ, but also share commonalities? Yeah, I mean, a message that I was trying to get across in the book is that there isn't one way to grieve. And one of the counsellors I spoke to said that sometimes children become quite anxious that they're not grieving right, that they're mm. doing something wrong. You might actually feel quite numb. You might quite quickly go back to school and get on with everyday life. And people can feel guilty about that. And so I was trying to get across the message that there isn't one way to grieve. And I think my stories hopefully demonstrate that. There was a young man that I interviewed who'd been orphaned at a really young age and he hadn't really properly grieved for it until his 20s but actually he said you know he still think that was right for him you know he started grieving at a time when he was able to cope with those emotions so I think there were very different approaches I think the thing that they had in common really was that they many years on still were happy to talk about what happened still were happy to process it and in particular to talk about the person that they had lost I think the story sort of really proved that decades on you know you still do remember the person who was lost and that you still want to talk about them in every chapter of the book there is a voice of an adult who has lost a loved one as a teenager so how important was that to have in the book so the young people reading it could see a path forward and most importantly hope for the future and build one yeah that was kind of really central to my idea when I pitched the book to the publishers because I didn't want it just to be a memoir of my experience I think I was really conscious that you know, my experience is unique and that there would be people reading it who had lost parents or, or other people in very, very different ways. You know, my mum had a long illness and that's very different from somebody that loses a person suddenly in a car accident or, or a heart attack. So it was really important to me that I gathered a range of stories so that people would hopefully find at least something in there that was sort of a bit closer to their own experience. 
And what did writing the book teach you about yourself, do you think? Yeah, I mean, some people have said, oh, you know, was it a really healing experience? And to be honest, it wasn't. It was a really (laughs) painful experience. And I was listening to another podcast where somebody talked about memoir writing and said the same thing, which made me feel a bit better. You know, there is a bit of a cost to digging up the past and reflecting on it. I think what I came away thinking is actually it's something that I... I won't get over in a sense. And and that was something which a a counsellor at a hospice said to me, you know, we have to remove the pressure for people to say that they've got over something. It's actually something that you carry with you and you you carry on living and your life grows around the grief. But it's not something that, at least for me, I'm going to sort of get over or move past. Let's reflect on your journalism journey, Maddie. So, so far, what has been your proudest achievement? Um... I think probably it's feedback from people who I've interviewed who've been really happy with how they've appeared on the page and felt that I really represented their story fairly. So I did do a really long feature recently on neurodiversity and autism, which I think is a difficult story sometimes to get right. You know, there's a lot of sensitivities. There's been a lot of misunderstanding. And I was quite nervous about publishing the piece because I really did want to add to those problems so getting feedback from neurodiverse people who'd said you know that they liked the feature that they felt that it was accurate and and fair that really meant a lot to me because it was something that I was very worried about Mm. getting wrong and as a final question similar question to the book what has this wider journalism journey taught you about yourself um I think it's taught me that there are limitations to reporting in a sense. I think you can try your hardest to get to the truth of something, but there will always be or often a competing versions depending on who you talk to, you know, and you can go with your instincts, but, you know, they might be wrong. And it's that's kind of a lifelong learning process that you do your best to discern the truth, to speak to as many people as, as possible. But yeah, there will always be a challenge in, into what you put on the page. And it's sometimes impossible to keep everybody happy, I guess. We've talked all about Maddie, the journalist. Now I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Madeline we meet here? So I would say that I was always quite an anxious person and that's something which my dad has also kind of verified that yes of course losing my mum had a big impact but even prior to that I was a worrier and as a kid I had a book that was called The Very Worried Sparrow um, which draws on, on a bible story but I just remember reading that as a small child and sort of really identifying with this little bird who was worried about everything so I think I wouldn't have known obviously that there was this term mental health at, at the time but looking back definitely sort of I was an anxious person. When it comes to the grief Maddie as you said you lost your mum when you were 12 years old which is a very I mean there's no age to to lose your mum but it's a very Mm. important age really when it comes to the start of puberty and all sorts of other things just Mm. tell me first about your favourite memories of your mum and the woman she was before she died. Yeah so I'm quite lucky in that I do have a lot of memories of my mum. I think because she died when I was 12, I do still have a lot of memories of life before that. I have a really good memory of being at this fair and making these clay pots with her and then getting in the car and it'd be driving rain and a thunderstorm. I think as a kid, thunderstorms are really exciting. So I just have (laughs) lots of little memories like that of just having her undivided attention. 
Um, and I think having kids now, I try and remember that feeling that, you know, what kids want from you is that sort of undivided love and attention, which I think my mum was really good at giving. And are there any favourite sayings or ad libs or mantras that she gave you then or would say to you that you hold with you now? Um, I think what more what I remember is is little songs that she used to sing. So my <laughs> mum had been a young person in the 60s and had lived in London and gone to art school. So she was quite cool. And um, I remember lots of kind of Motown and Rolling Stones songs that she would sing to us. And they've really stayed with me. And I, I sing them to my own kids now. So that's kind of something that I remember. I do remember little sayings that she would say, but it's often kind of a musical memory, actually. And when it comes to the grieving process, what do you remember about the way you grieved in the weeks and months and years afterwards without your mum in your life? So I think this is can be quite a common response for sort of older daughters. But I think I really tried to distract myself really with schoolwork and with trying to in some ways sort of standing for what my mum had done in terms of helping look after my siblings and look after the house. And so I just kept myself incredibly busy. So I think that was initially my approach was, you know, I did have people that I could talk to and it wasn't exactly that I buried what happened, but I did try to keep myself very, very busy. And obviously, as you said, you're the eldest of three siblings. So you're the oldest and you've got two younger siblings. How much pressure did you feel to step up and look after them in a way or was it just a positive distraction um I mean I think that relates to my anxiety really in that I think losing someone makes you very aware of all the potential things that can go wrong you know you have this really heightened sense of risk and it's sort of like your arm has been stripped away so you'll never again feel that the world is a safe place at least that was how I felt and so I think sort of trying to look after other people was really my way of trying to control risks, you know, try to hold everything together and, you know, at a very young age to prevent anything sort of bad ever happening again. I I think that was really sort of driving a lot of what I did. So the element of control came into quite prominence there. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, your dad is not on this podcast to speak for himself and it was a long time ago. But how did you see your dad deal with the grief and have to step up to support you all as a single parent because that's a pretty big thing to do yeah it was incredibly difficult for him really and he'd actually lost his own dad as a child so you know it was that double grief really of all of that being reactivated you know the grief of losing his dad as a very small child and then losing his wife so he was coping with a lot really um I think we're very lucky in that he's very much not the stereotype of the kind of British man with the stiff upper lip who can't talk about emotions he's not like that at all so we were really fortunate in that you know he's very happy to talk about my mum we had photos of her everywhere but it was still you know incredibly hard for him to go through and when it comes to the grief itself did it come back more prominently when you had those important milestones you know sixth form prom graduation marriage children yeah um probably most really once had my own children in that I sort of think my mum would have loved being a grandmother you know she really loved children she was a very sort of natural mum and so it's probably you know now really more than ever I'm kind of missing her and knowing that she would have loved to experience that sort of stage of life I think she'd have been a really really good grandmother. Well that brings us nicely on to motherhood so how did your grief affect your desire to be a mum in the first place? Um, So I think 
I'd always wanted children, you know, I had loads of dolls when I was a little girl <laughs> and, I, and I loved looking after them. I, you know, I spent a lot of time looking after my younger brother and sister. So it was something that I always, you know, I always wanted to be a mum. So I think it was really a case of being brave enough to do that despite being an anxious person because you don't want to let that worry and that anxiety colour all the positive things that, that happen in life or spoil those experiences. You know, you just want to allow yourself to live in the moment and there's a, a parenting book that I was reading when I first had a baby and it was talking about the importance of staying in the present so it can mm. be really easy when you have a baby to either start really dwelling on the past or worrying about the future and it was this lovely Australian doctor I can't remember his name now but he was saying you know just stay in the present with your baby and enjoy the present you know don't be going backwards or forwards all the time which I, mm. I found really helpful advice. I also presume that as the elder sibling, you were perhaps the first one of your siblings to have children. So how did it feel for your dad to give him a grandchild in that way? And well, two grandchildren, but the first one especially. (laughs) So I was actually, I followed my younger sister. So she had the first baby in the family. But yeah, my, my dad absolutely loves having grandchildren. He's really, really good at it. And I think it has been a really wonderful experience for our family. You know, we were quite a small unit for so long after my mum died. And, you know, you're bringing in a whole new sort of generation. And so, you know, things like Christmas and family gatherings, you know, they're really chaotic now. <laughs> we can be sort of... Yeah, very chaotic, very noisy, but it is just that new life, which I think has been absolute joy for him, really. Mm. And for my listeners, Maddie, your dad had to fulfil both the mother and the father role, which I guess is impossible to do 100% for biological reasons as much as it is social reasons. For any of my listeners who might be in the same situation or might be single parents or just anything in between and they might be preparing for parenthood, How did you see your dad evolve into that role and what advice do you think you could give them? I mean, when I was interviewing um, a counsellor for my book and she talked about the children that come to see her, she said almost the number one thing that she would recommend to parents is get counselling for yourself because often the children are really worried about their surviving parents and you know it's a bit like that thing about you know putting the life jacket on yourself first Mm. um, or the advice they give you on the plane but... I would recommend to people who are parenting alone, um, you know, particularly if they've been bereaved, is don't be afraid to get support for yourself so that you can be, you know, the best possible parent for your children. You know, don't just focus entirely on the children and, and getting them support because actually, you know, they will do so much better if you look after yourself and prioritise that. So that's mm. definitely advice that I, I would give to parents. And I think there's also some really beautiful books out there which feature single parents. There's a book called The Storm Whale, which I'm reading to my kids at the moment, and it features single dad. And I really love that because I think, oh, I, I can't remember so many books when I was little. You know, it was often two parent families. And I think it's nice that there's books now that without making a big deal of it, just present families where, you know, it is a a one parent family and you know he's a really lovely dad in in this book and helps this little boy in his whale and I think it's just nice to see that illustrated you know that there are single parent families who are who are thriving. You said something really profound to me off air when it comes to motherhood you said that having children is an act of faith it's a way to build hope for the future just tell me what you meant by that. So there's a um, an American pastor called um, Frederick Beekner 
Um, and he has a quote that I really like, which is, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid, which I hold on to because I think you go into parenthood, particularly when you've lost someone, knowing that the world is beautiful and terrible and trying to hold the two in tension. And I think having children is kind of an act of courage in that you're saying, you know, despite that fact and despite anxiety, you know, life can be good. Life can be wonderful. Um, You're bringing children into the world in that knowledge and, you know, praying that they will experience all the beautiful things in it. And how do you plan to tackle faith with your own children? Will they have a choice as to whether they take up the faith or like a football team, will they not get one? Yeah. So I I do want to bring them up going to church and sharing my faith with them. And I think that if you truly believe that something is true and that it's good, you know, that God loves you, that God is with you, then you do want to impart that to your children. That is the picture of the world that you want to give them. But I will also, you know, as they grow up, I want to make it clear that it, it is something that they choose for themselves. You know, I don't want them to feel pressured to share that faith and I want to be very open to their questions you know I think one of the worst things you can do is to shut down children's questions and their doubts you know kids are naturally inquisitive they're gonna encounter you know other ways of life other children at school other families you know that raises loads of questions so I always want to be open to those and to discussion but you know I think a lot we do is sort of modeling faith so you know I want them to look at me and and my husband and hopefully see how we live out our faith in our everyday life Mm. and for that to be something that you know they're drawn to. And when it comes to your faith itself how does it help you or how did it help you through that grief and shape your outlook on life generally I mean I am somebody that prays a lot and I think you know it was a way of tackling those feelings of loneliness and and isolation was being able to talk to God about what had happened and, and to pray about it and that did help me to feel less alone and I think just also practically you know I was part of a a lovely church with amazing youth leaders who were you know a massive massive support to me and as I've said I met my best friend at church so just in terms of that community that was incredibly helpful for me as well. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now Maddie so given everything you've achieved you're the mother of two (laughs) wonderful children you're a successful journalist a great person all round if your (laughs) mum was listening to this podcast what do you think you would say to her and what do you think she would say to you? Wow. Um, I think I I just want to say, you know, thank you for the mother that she was to us and everything that she passed on to me, you know, my love of reading and writing, you know, hopefully she would be pleased that I ended up being a writer and that I've carried on loving reading. And, you know, I think she, as I said, I think she would have loved being a grandmother so I would I would just love her to have the opportunity to, to meet the children. Mm. And similar question as the first topic, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? Um, I think it's taught me to kind of be gentle and, and kind to myself. I think sort of sometimes people who are anxious get very frustrated with themselves you know they're often told just stop worrying <laughs> and it's <laughs> if only it was that easy eh? <laughs> yeah exactly and it doesn't help to beat yourself up about the fact that you're anxious and so I think there is a sort of a technique which people are taught which is just to recognize that you're feeling anxious say sort of oh 
you know, this is what I'm feeling. There's another anxious thought, you know, observe the thought rather than kind of beating yourself up about it. So I guess it's kind of a lifelong journey to be kind to yourself when you're feeling anxious, mm. um, not to just make that another reason <laughs> and to worry that you're not kind of over it, you know, is something which... I think you can work on, you know, I think there are, are techniques and, you know, medication if you want, want to do that, that can help. But just being patient with yourself, I think mm. is really important. And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the 12 year old Maddie who had just lost her mum, the Madeline who was wondering about whether to pursue her dream of being a journalist properly, or the Madeline who had just become a mum herself, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? Um, so I think as I've just said, I wouldn't say don't worry, because <laughs> um, I think it's just the worst advice to give a worrier. I would probably, I mean, I would say this being a Christian and a Church Times writer, but I would probably encourage her to keep praying and to stay close to God. And when I was preparing for the podcast, I was reminded of a poem that's called The Gate of the Year by Minnie Louise Haskins. And it was read out on the radio by the Queen's father at the Christmas, just after the Second World War broke out. And it says, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. And I think just that concept of sort of putting your hand into the hand of God, I find really helpful. So I would probably tell her to do that and to, yeah, try to trust God. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Maddie, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? Yeah, I think it's okay. I mean, as I've said, I think I am an anxious person. Um, So (laughs) there's probably rarely a time when there's not something kind of buzzing around my head or that sort of vaguely hovering there. But as I said, I'm kind of trying to be gentle with myself about that and not beat myself up about it. Mm. You know, there there are good days and bad days and I'm trying to sort of be kind to myself in in that area. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? So I did have counselling as a 12-year-old after my mum died. And to be honest, I think I was always a bit wary and and a bit cautious of of the people doing the counselling I think you as a kid you feel a bit like you're under a microscope and you're sort of being scrutinised and I did find that quite difficult I probably got more out of actually reading about mental health in novels and kind of self-help books over the years to be honest there was an experience where I was with a psychologist and she gave me a list of very physical symptoms there were things like sort of struggling with breath feeling dizzy, lots of kind of very physical symptoms. And she said, you know, tick any that you've experienced. And I I ticked loads and I was thinking, (laughs) oh my goodness, what is wrong with me? And then she said, oh, did you know these are all symptoms of anxiety? And that was just such a revelation to me because I was thinking, oh gosh, I've got some terrible physical (laughs) disease. Learning that actually anxiety can have all these kind of physical manifestations was really helpful to me in a sense to kind of recognize that you know the body manifests anxiety Mm. and and that's often what's happening and what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet I mean, it's, it's a bit of a kind of hazard of the occupation, but I think actually reading <laughs> stories in the news can be, is something I have to be really careful about. 
Yeah, testify. You know, yeah. Follow, following current affairs, you know. Yeah, think, testify. Oh, I should, yeah. <laughs> you think, oh, I should read up on that. Or, you know, you think, oh, really, I know that if I read that, it will worry me or it will distress me, you know. And it's, it's almost like a temptation where you think, you know, just avoid it. You know it will make you feel anxious, but you, you know, you want to know, you want to read on. So it's something that I sort of try and keep under control. <laughs> and conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Um, so I do find walking and running and being outside really helpful. Prayer, I've mentioned as well, that that's definitely a big thing for me. In terms of less helpful, I do struggle with mindfulness, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, it's not for um, everyone. Sort of, yeah, I think sort of, I do get the principle behind it, but I find it very hard to still my mind. Yes. Um, and just to do that kind of, <laughs> I've got such an overactive imagination, I think, and sort of thoughts flitting around. I think I actually find prayer more of an active process. So it mm. is a kind of, it is sort of mindfulness in a sense, but it's more active and that I'm actually trying to process what I'm feeling with, with God. So I find that much more helpful than maybe kind of the mindfulness technique. I may know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, I'm sure you'll be able to think of a book. But if you can't think of a book, a album, play, TV show, any piece of popular culture. I mean, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, actually, one of the really influential books was probably The Very Worried Sparrow that I read as a five-year-old. Oh, okay. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, st- yeah. I still really relate to it, and I still think it's a really lovely message. And weirdly, when I joined the Church Times, I found it was written by the wife of one of my colleagues. <laughs> so I've actually got <laughs> to meet world, the author. Eh? I know, so I've got to meet the author, which was huge for me. But there are songs that I... Um, I find really helpful as well. There's this song called Death by um, White Lies, but it's all about experiencing fear and then trusting that there's a love that's kind of carrying you. I do play that really loud sometimes. White Lies, that is, a, that, I think I've got their first album. That's the one that goes as, let's grow old together and die at the same time. Very, very, very cheery. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. I've got two questions. No, I've got three questions left. The first one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, It might be that Frederick Beekner one about, you know, terrible and beautiful things will happen, but, you know, don't be afraid. I'd probably kind of carry that one with me, yeah. What do you love about yourself? <laughs> I find that quite hard English, to answer. English guests um, always struggle with this one. <laughs> uh... I can give you I some mean, if you struggle. <laughs> I think I think I do I do try to be open about my own kind of failings and my own flaws and I think I'm someone that doesn't find it hard to apologize and I suppose that's something that you know that I do try to live by sort of the knowledge that I'm not perfect that I get things wrong and I do try to be quite ready to say I'm sorry to people and and sometimes I think that's something that, that we can find really hard. You know, even mm. in the church, sometimes you think, you know, why was it so hard to just acknowledge mistakes and say sorry? Um, so that's something which I, I try and practice. That's a societal issue now, isn't it? People just really struggle because I think it's just that whole culture of, well, from a corporation and I guess company point of view, if you say sorry, then you open yourself up to, yeah. in their view, oh, loads of other things that come after that. 
Yeah, and sometimes I think we can come down like a ton of bricks on people even when they do apologise. doesn't yeah. necessarily encourage people to do it, but I just think there's something really freeing about holding your hands up and saying, I really got that wrong, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, I read a book by Adam Grant recently called Think Again, which I th- was really powerful for that. So yeah, we'll definitely mm. recommend to the to the listeners. I've got one question left and it is a broad one. So what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all faiths, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it yeah I think that's a really good caveat that you put at the end I, I don't think anyone should be forced to talk about it openly and I think sometimes you know there's there's so much now about you know it's okay to talk and mm. um, you know you, you get people offering their their life stories which I do think is very helpful but I don't think people should be pressured to do that because I can overshare people... as well as some yeah. people do on a lot of other podcasts that I yeah. won't name <laughs> you know I've heard people talk about what's called a vulnerability hangover which is after having done that you do feel quite exposed and, yeah. and post post pod anxiety I call it but I like yeah. that vulnerability yeah. hangover I like that yeah so you know I I also think that it's really important that once people have opened up or they've said that they need help you know the support has to be there for them and I think there are real challenges in, in accessing talking therapies for example so we need to make sure that once people have opened up or asked for help that they're actually going to to get it and I think that's a real challenge for us at the moment what a brilliant way to end. Madeline Davies, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Madeline for being my special guest and for letting me check in with her. I'll put some links to where you can buy Madeline's book and follow her on social media in the show notes as always. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about the podcast and vent. If you've been generous, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or go to www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out all the other ways you can support Vent financially. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.